and nobody wants to go out to Braley Pond. They're afraid that there's some demons out there. Braley Pond is a four and a half acre recreational area located in the George Washington and Jefferson National Forest, just 30 minutes west of Stanton, Virginia. Despite its popularity during the day, Braley Pond has become infamous for what happens there at night. He spins him around and he slits his throat, throws him in the lake. On May 22, 2003, 19-year-old Christopher S. Kennedy, or Scott as he was called, was murdered by local gang members at Braley Pond. He was lured there under false pretenses, stabbed 13 times in the chest and back, his body dumped into the water. Six months later, Shay Willis and her friend Chris Pugh, two local paranormal investigators, visited Braley Pond after hearing rumors of strange, unexplainable events happening there. What they found was unlike anything they had ever experienced before. And before I could get up and move, whatever it was that was behind me landed on my back. I could feel what felt like a physical presence, which is unlike anything I, I have ever experienced before or since. What, whatever was in that water, whatever came up over the dam, whatever it was that was following us across the bridge, I had stopped and it caught me. So this thing is more of a, it, it feeds on soul energy. That's what it's after. It needs soul energy. What happened at Braley Pond? Available this October, wherever you get your podcasts. Season 3, Episode 42, Big Jeff, Little Jeff, Jeff Durbin and Jeff Miller, Alternative Suspects. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snow Files merch. into that 
shot him. That's their MO. It takes a certain kind of person to do that. And that's their MO. And, and, and that's that's what these guys' MO was. I mean, they, they were robbers. And from everything that's been turned over to us to date, they didn't clear these guys. We have one of the guys' ex-wife giving a statement to the police saying that, you know, he had confessed to her. And then there's nothing. There's nothing beyond that from the authorities, you know. To me, you know, I, I guess what I really want to take, what I really want to get people to take away from these episodes about these other suspects is that they didn't do a proper investigation. They didn't rule these, these people out. They didn't give these guys polygraphs. All the things that they did with me, they didn't do with them. And that's why I really feel like, and I think a lot of people do, that they didn't care about the truth. They just wanted to close the case on somebody. And that's what they did. I'm hoping that somebody that's hearing these episodes is going to know something. I still believe that someone in Bloomington knows the truth. Someone in that area knows the truth. And we're hoping that somebody out there who's listening is going to come, come forward. But who's to say, if, if, if we can get the, uh, the forensic testing done and we get a link to one of these guys to the gas station. So I think that would be a big plus. So anyway, I hope you guys are interested in these episodes and we'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about the Jeffs. Jeff Durbin, Big Jeff, was a cab driver, and Jeff Miller, Little Jeff, was his accomplice in a string of armed robberies that occurred in 1991. Or was it the other way around? You decide. On May 30, 1991, Jeff Durbin's mobile home, located at 98 Mobile Land, was burned to the ground. The fire occurred around 7.30 in the evening. Durbin, co-owner of the mobile home, could not be reached for comment. Damages were estimated at about $4,000, and there were no injuries. Fire investigator David Adelsberger stated the fire seemed to be accidental, but needed to conduct more interviews to find the exact cause. No more information is available concerning the outcome of the blaze. So what does this have to do with the robberies? We don't know, but maybe someone listening does. Later that summer, on August 18th, the Econo Lodge on North Center in Bloomington was robbed at gunpoint. The attendant stated that the suspect entered the front door without her knowing. He displayed what she believed to be a blue revolver, and the suspect was wearing all blue, including his ski mask. Believes he was wearing gloves, but not sure. Stated suspect jumped over the counter, had her open the cash drawer, and he removed $166 in bills. Suspect also wanted her to open the safe, but she explained that she couldn't. Suspect left. Direction of travel unknown. and does not know if he left in a car. State suspect appeared to be dark tan, white male, shorter than 5'3", which was her height, and slim. Stated the gun looked like a revolver, but she does not know guns very well. Stated it was longer than the 4-inch gun she carries. The following night, the Clark Station on Morris was also robbed at gunpoint. State subject displayed a handgun and took an undetermined amount of cash and cigarettes. Fled on foot. Described as a white male, 5'8", 170 pounds, brown curly hair, blue and white striped flannel shirt, blue jeans, white tennis shoes, and a Halloween mask. 
A witness described the incident in an August 20, 1991 report taken by Officer Brucker. On August 19th at approximately 11.44 p.m., the witness observed the subject walking eastbound on Six Points Road. The witness stated the subject was not wearing a mask at the time. He observed the subject walk up to the Clark Station, but did not observe the armed robbery. The witness then observed the subject run past him with a rubber Halloween mask on. The subject was carrying a handgun and several cartons of cigarettes under his arm. He stated that the subject ran southbound on Morris across Veterans Parkway, almost getting hit by two vehicles. On August 22nd, Officer Brucker reported. He was contacted by the manager of Clark Oil, who stated that he had received information that the two girls had almost hit the robber the night of the robbery as he ran across Veterans, knew him, and that the suspect was Jeff Miller. The manager is trying to find out the girls' names for Brucker and will contact Brucker when he finds out. On Friday of the same week, another witness was interviewed by Brucker. This witness stated on the night of the armed robbery at the Clark Station on Morris. He was visiting his girlfriend on Colberton Court and his girlfriend's cousin's boyfriend, Big Jeff Durbin, who works for the ride cab company, came by in his cab with Little Jeff with him. Big Jeff left Little Jeff there while he went to talk to his girlfriend. Little Jeff had a backpack-type bag with him at the time. Big Jeff came back, and he and Little Jeff left the cab. Approximately three hours later, the witness was sitting in his van in the Clark Station lot, talking to his girlfriend on the phone. The witness was using the drive-up phone and was sitting in his van. The witness states that he noticed Big Jeff and Little Jeff come down veterans in the cab and turn on to Greenwood and go down to the trailer court and turn around. The cab then came back and pulled into the driveway into the cemetery, and the cab sat there for a minute. The cab then went west on the frontage road in front of Leash Dairy. Approximately two minutes later, the witness saw the cab come down Six Points Road and do a U-turn on Six Points just short of Morris. The cab then went back down west on Six Points. It was then that the witness noticed Little Jeff walking towards his van across Morris Avenue. The witness states that Little Jeff walked right in front of his van, approximately six feet away, but didn't notice the witness in the van as he did not have the van running. The witness states that Little Jeff did not have a mask on at this time. The witness states that about three minutes later, Little Jeff comes back around the van with a Halloween mask on and looks like the old bald guy from the Adams family, carrying a 38 in one hand and two cartons of cigarettes in the other. The witness states he watched Little Jeff run across Veterans Parkway and almost got hit by two vehicles, and then run into the cemetery on the southeast corner of Morris and Greenwood Avenue. The witness was then shown six mug shots and picked out Jeff Miller, stating that Little Jeff has lighter color hair now. Brucker then went to meet with Crow who had been watching Miller's house. Rucker told Crow about the witness account and Crow went to redacted E. Taylor and knocked on the door with no response, but noted there was a padlock on the back of the door. They then went to the ride cab company and spoke with an employee who stated that the only Jeff that works there is Jeff Durbin, but his sister had called to let them know that Jeff would not be to work, that he was in Indiana. The employee went on to say that Durbin hangs out with a guy that always wears a cap with a motorcycle insignia on it. The employee stated that the guy was with Durbin Monday morning when Durbin picked up Redacted from work 
and that guy had a shoulder or backpack-like bag with him that he took with him when they dropped him off prior to going to the cab company. The employee stated that Durbin lives on Taylor Street and that little Jeff lives just up the street from him and that Durbin's girlfriend said he was in Indianapolis and was due back this evening on August 23rd. After showing a photo lineup, the employee immediately picked out Jeff Miller as the person that was with Durbin when he picked up Redacted on August 20th at 5 a.m. On August 24th, police report states that Shepard spoke with Durbin on the phone and that Durbin asked why police were looking for him. Throughout the interview, Shepard tries to get him to come into the station to speak with police. According to the report, Durbin stated, on his own, that he did not have anything to do with the armed robbery and that he had a logbook from the cab company that would prove it. However, he did agree to come into the station, although he was hesitant to do so. When he arrived at the station, Shepard took Durbin into an interview room, advised him of his rights, and began to question him. Durbin goes into a long, twisted story about things that don't even relate to this, full of details about where he was, where Miller was, when he picked people up, picking up babysitters, being flagged down, going back and forth with fares, no-shows, and on and on. After being pressured to nail down times, Durbin responded he didn't really remember, but he had written them down on his log sheet. It really didn't make much sense. Durbin did mention, however, that he and Miller had gone to Indiana together, that they had left Tuesday, August 20th, and returned this morning around 7.30 a.m. The interview ended with police advising Durbin to let Miller know that police wanted to speak with him, and they also told Durbin to come to the station the next day and to bring his logbook with him. The next day, on August 25th, Miller came to the police station, stating he heard that police wanted to speak with him. The reporting officer, Davis, called Detective Bagnell, and Bagnell didn't answer the phone. Davis then called Detective Shepard at his residence and tried to get more information as he was unfamiliar with the case. Shepard then gave Davis what he knew of the case and told him where the supplemental reports were on Bagnell's desk, and Davis sat down and reviewed the reports. Obviously, this is taking some time, and the whole time Miller is sitting in the interview room waiting. When Davis finally finishes and goes into the interview room, Miller demands to know if he's under arrest. At that time, he was shown a copy of the warrant and read his rights, but Miller refused to speak without his lawyer present. Miller did, however, ask to make a phone call, which he used to call the ride cab company, and left a message for Jeff Durbin. He was then booked into the McLean County Jail. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month, or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button. Davis noted that during the booking process, Miller asked him if he watched the football game on Monday night. Miller made the point that he watched part of the game on Monday night at home and then fell asleep, and that he woke up at about midnight and Jeff Durbin picked him up in the cab and he rode with him for a while. And that statement was made without Davis asking him anything. Davis made a big note in all capital letters. It is my opinion that Miller was attempting to make up an alibi for his whereabouts without discussing the case. The same evening, 
Miller requested that he wanted to speak with Shepard. When Shepard arrived to work, he went to visit Miller in his cell. When Miller tried to talk to him, Shepard told him that he couldn't speak with him because he'd evoked his rights, and he could only speak with him if Miller requested it. After the request, Shepard took Miller into an interview room where Miller admitted to his involvement in the armed robberies at Clark Oil on Morris, the Econo Lodge, and the mobile station robberies. When asked about Durbin's involvement, Miller refused to answer, and when police informed Miller they knew Durbin was involved, Miller would just smile and say he wasn't saying anything, because Durbin was connected to the Aryan Nation. Miller went on to state that he got the gun from a car burglary that he did on the first block east of Clinton on Walnut. He saw a couple of packs of cigarettes in the car, and when he went to steal them, saw the gun and took that too. He described the car as being between a 70 and a 75 Chevrolet two-door, white or beige, rusting badly, with the driver's side window busted and a plastic cover over it. But police were unable to locate the vehicle or any reports of the theft. That same evening, Durbin called and said he was going to bring the log sheets that would prove him innocent, but he never showed up. Police went to his home, but his wife answered the door and stated that he wasn't there, but had left some cab log sheets and that she was supposed to take them to the station. Nice guy, huh? Police told his wife they didn't want the sheets, that they wanted Durbin to deliver them himself so they could talk to him. She said she would give him the message. Around 8 that night, Durbin called police and said that the rumor is that he is a suspect in the armed robberies, but that he wasn't coming in because he knew he'd be arrested. He said he wasn't involved, but he was guilty by association. He said he would send the logs by certified mail, but wasn't coming into the station, and he wouldn't talk to anyone without an attorney present. On August 27th, after police staked Durbin out, Crow finally arrested him. It was a bit of a runaround, and you can read the actual police reports online on the episode page at snowfiles.net. In his interview, Durbin admitted to driving Miller around, getting money from Miller after the robberies, knowing what Miller was doing, and seeing the gun and mask, but still hedged on admitting any direct involvement. In the end, Miller received 18 years, and Durbin received 20. On November of that same year, Detectives Crow and Harris went to the McLean County Jail to speak with Miller's wife, who had called in a tip. During the interview, she told detectives that Jeff had confessed to the Clark murder. Miller stated that her husband, Jeff Miller, told her this past summer that he killed that kid at the Clark station. He told Karen that he shot him with a gun, and Jeff Durbin was with him in the getaway car. She said that they were married when Jeff told her, but they weren't married when he did it. They were just going together and lived together on South Allen Street. Crow asked when the kid got killed, and she said that he got killed in March or August of last year. She went on to say that just recently, Jeff robbed the Clark station on South Morris Avenue, and that he had a blue mask on and had a BB gun. He also robbed the mobile station on South Main Street and also robbed a motel. She stated that she was in a mental treatment center in Decatur, and Jeff called and told her he was in jail for the armed robbery of Clark on Morris and the mobile station and the motel. She stated that they have been married for seven months. At the end of the interview, Crow was advised that Karen's attorney Eccles was on the phone and wanted to talk. Crow talked with Eccles who stated that he would rather we not talk to Karen unless he was present 
and if we wanted to talk with her in the future, that we could contact him. Jeff Miller is 5'6 and only weighs 125 pounds. He has dark brown curly hair and no scar on his chin. Another person cleared for not matching the description. But remember, neither did Jamie, and she was spot on about everything, including that if they had only been married for seven months, the Clark murder on Empire would have been a month before they got married. How is it that they believe everything except the Clark murder? In June of 1993, a Crime Stoppers lead came in. C.S. stated, Durbin approached him after the murder and wanted C.S. to do something, not stated, for Durbin. C.S. refused. Durbin stated to C.S. that Durbin was involved in the little murder with one other suspect. C.S. saw a second suspect, but cannot give a description. We've not seen any follow-up whatsoever on either of these leads. Where is the interview with the Crime Stoppers tipster? Did they not even talk to this person? And most importantly, how are the Jeffs cleared of the Clark Oil murder? When I talked to Bob Ruff about this um, on uh, the Truth and Justice podcast, the least strange happened with Jeff Durbin uh, after I'd been tried, convicted, and was in prison in the receiving center in the Joliet Correctional Center. This dude just came walking up to my cell, and he was like, it's snow, it's snow in here. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I, I asked him, who are you, you know, and he said his name was Jeff Durbin. And he said, I just wanted to see uh, who it was they pinned that Clark case on. Something along those, those lines. But it was, it was basically, I wanted to see who they pinned the case on. And he, he told me his name, and I'd never heard the name before. And then years later, when I get the discovery material, there's his name as a possible suspect. You know, it just seemed, looking back on it, it was just so uh, strange to have this dude seek me out to see who they pin the case on. For an interesting take on this issue, listen to The Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, Season 7, Episode 22, The Durbin-Holt Connection, where Bob Ruff explores the connection between Wiley Holt, Durbin's boss, and the armed robberies. You can view and read the newspaper articles, police reports, and graphics related to this episode on the episode page at snowfiles.net. Let us know what you think. And don't forget to give Snowfiles Podcast a five-star rating on Apple or Podchaser for you Android users. Every rating puts us higher on the charts, gets us more traffic, and helps us get the word out about Jamie's case. Someone knows something. We invite any witness featured on the Snowfiles Podcast to come on the show to give their point of view to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In this episode, we presented a pair of alternative suspects who admitted to robbing three other gas stations near the murder scene just five months after Bill Little was murdered while working at the Clark gas station. Jeff Miller was sentenced to 18 years for committing the robberies and Jeff Durbin to 20 for his involvement in driving the getaway car. Even though Durbin taunted Jamie about being pinned for the Clark Station murder, the two Jeffs were never tied to the murder by authorities. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW.
There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. You've heard of three other people with striking likeness to the real killer of Bill Little, but there are still more unbelievable suspects to share. That's next time on Snowfiles. Files.